Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the choo-choo! I mean, this is one of those films that I think has been requested for a very long time. It seems right up Wisecracks Alley because it's very on the nose with its social commentary, as are pretty much all of the director's films. We're talking about Snowpiercer, directed and adapted by Bong Joon-ho, starring Chris Evans, Jamie Bell, Tilda Swinton, John Hurt, Octavia Spencer, Song Kang-ho, I hope I'm saying that correctly, and uh, a bevy of of others and a wonderful supporting cast as well. As always, we're going to go around and talk about first impressions. What was it like the first time we saw this? How has the film held up on repeated viewings? And what was it like the most recent time we saw this? I want to start with Ryan, and the reason is because I have heard a little bit of a sour tone in his voice when we have mentioned this film. Not saying he doesn't like the film, but that maybe it's not one of your more preferred Bong Joon-ho films. Um, am I am I sensing something there? Like I feel like you're into it, but you're not really into it. Am I am I wrong on this? Yes, I think oh. you're wrong on this. Oh. I I uh, uh, it's funny because I was gonna bring up start, bring up how this is probably like I don't know my sixth or seventh favorite Bong Joon Ho movie. Well, yeah. With, out of out of seven. Out yeah, of seven. Nice. Okay. Yeah. But I love every one of them so much. Sure. To okay. me, they're almost all amazing. Uh, uh, and and no, I, I to me I'm an almost a Snowpiercer apologist for this movie because I feel oh, okay. like a lot of other people uh, will kind of go out of their way to say like oh yeah I love Bong Joon Ho but I you know not Snowpiercer is kind of hokey or cheesy or whatever the their adjective is for it but to me um, I really like this movie I think that the, the, it's a great piece of like just genre filmmaking it's great action you know uh, high concept sci fi dystopian future movie. Uh, really unique, I think. And, you know, it's his only um, English language movie, which I think he does a great job at. Uh, uh, But I will say, obviously, clearly, I mean, for as much high praise as I can give on the movie, clearly the last third of the movie or even maybe just that last climax is pretty lame, I think, Uh, when he's finally meeting uh, Wilford, Ed Harris's character at the train, and then there's that long, 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 long conversation they have. You know, and and talk about being on the nose like that. The, the, to me, that's the worst sequence of his whole career, and and specifically because it is so just like taking everything we've watched up till then, you know, any mystery of it, and then just essentially giving us this long drawn out monologue where he's explaining right on the nose, you know, I don't know what, what, uh, the, the the thematics of the film, and I didn't like that part. Yeah, so young but filmmakers try to show not tell, right? <laughs> Yeah, this is that's like one of the ultimate, you know, tell not showing scenes, I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then it leads to this very strange conclusion, which I st- to me the conclusion is one of the most interesting parts of the movie, like his decision to say fuck the train. And basically, it, to me that's like almost like a suicide m- move, right? Where uh, 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 once w- w- it's not even his decision; it's it's that other dude, the stowaway, whoever causes Nam. the train to go. Nam. Yeah, you know, like, like, like just choosing to, uh, to end your movie that way, I think it's a bold decision. I think we should talk about just what it means, what he's trying to say with the ending and whatever. But no, I, I like this movie. I'm, I'm going to give this movie a, an A-minus. An wow. Okay, so how does this One film hold up from like the first time you saw it to repeated viewings? Is it still, still good stuff? Dude, yeah, like especially the the beginning, especially the first act of the movie yeah. when they're really starting the revolution and they're really you're really kind of building the world of the train and the whole Snowpiercer uh, universe. That uh, I love it, man. Like, yeah. like, and it, it, not not only um, does it have his just super, I don't know how you can describe it, but deliberate camera work and uh, uh, but and really cool characters, really interesting world. But but it's amazing action, and we don't really have much action in his movies other than The Host, uh, which is a great action movie. But um, but yeah, he just can nail it with that kind of just yeah that kind of cinema. Yeah, what definitely. do y'all think? Yeah, Raymond, what about you, brother? Um, I uh, I love Bong Juno. Um, yeah, I love Bong Juno. The end. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, do you remember? I do you one... remember the first? Yeah. Do you remember the first time you saw it? Yeah, I saw this one in theaters, and I had really enjoyed the host. Um, 
and uh, went back and watched uh, Barking Dogs Never Bite and um, Memories of Murder, which I really, uh, I really like. Uh, and I've seen this a few times since watching it in theaters, and I, I didn't get a chance to, to rewatch it uh, in preparation for the podcast, but I felt like okay doing that because I think I've seen it three or four times. Um, I think that this was the movie for me, despite having enjoyed uh, his, his previous films as much as I did, that really put him like permanently on my radar, where I was like, I'll just I'll watch anything that this guy does. Um, and, mm. uh, I hear you, uh, on a lot of your stuff there, Ryan. Um, I, I, I think that the movie really does clip in those first couple of acts. Um, some wonderful action, really, really great, simple use of the camera, uh, to, to communicate progress. Um, there's no shortage of video essays on this movie, but I, I remember one that I watched where they, they talk about just the... This, the the simple but significant uh, visual idea that the the back of the train the fo- or Chris Evans and the folks from the back of the train are always moving from left to right on the screen things like that that uh, that communicate progress really effectively reminds me of uh, Mad Max Fury Road how every single action scene mm. in that movie like the the thing you're supposed to be paying attention to is always dead center in the middle of the frame which is like it just seems so obvious, but it's one of those things that George Miller said on the day. He was always like, put the crosshairs just right on their nose. I, there's so much going on in this movie. I don't want the audience to to be searching the screen for where the action is. And I think that that, that simple stuff is so undervalued, just just that, that simple, subtle clarity uh, in action. And, uh, you know, if, if you'll pardon the pun, this, this movie does move like a freight train for most of its runtime, but... By the end of it, when everything slows down and Ed Harris kind of goes into his, you know, his monologue, that exchange there with Chris Evans to, to kind of set up the film's uh, denouement, um, there, I, I will, I'll kind of stick in for that sequence because I think, yes, Show Don't Tell is um, a, a very apt uh, sort of writing tip uh 99.9 of the time but there are sequences in certain movies this one uh network comes to mind ned Beatty's scene in that where the 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 villain sort of their whole outlook their whole thing is so morally repugnant that in order for them to communicate their perspective on things there really is no way to effectively show it without just like showing the violence that that extends from that philosophy or from that perspective um and so i i, I do I, I do think that it's a, a fitting way to uh, to bring the movie to a close but uh i i also agree with you ryan though on uh on the very ending beats once the the train is finally derailed uh there's a really great um you know for this movie i'll call it a subtle moment it's certainly subtle by comparison where uh the 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 last survivors kind of share a, a quiet moment with a, that polar bear sort of uh, walking across the tundra in this sort of recognition that uh, maybe life has gone on and that there is some hope and that and that you know they're going to be able to figure this thing out and they they won't necessarily freeze to death straight away. Um, but long story short, I'm a big fan of Snowpiercer and uh, I'm eager to talk about it. Cool. Yeah, I do wonder if it's a bleak ending or is it a hopeful ending, and I think this is something that we can definitely talk about. Um, For me, first time I saw the film, I really enjoyed it for the social commentary. I enjoyed the action. I really loved the fact that Chris Evans was given something a little meaty rather than – because this was, what, 2013? Rather than just being like the pretty boy kind of thing or something that he could Yeah, this was like right after Avengers, you know? Yeah, so for me, I thought it was really cool for him. And my buddy Kier and I, um, we used to do a podcast called I Dig This Movie. So if anyone out there used to listen to us, shouts to – rest in peace to that. But um, we – talked about how one of the things that Hollywood loves to do is when they take a pretty boy and they want to turn him into a serious actor, they put a hat on his head and they make him grow out a beard. <laughs> like, look at Hell or High Water with Chris Pine. Put a freaking cowboy hat on his head, give him a little bit of scruff, and then they, they make him a serious actor, right? They do it with Chris Evans. They do it a lot of times. Matt Damon in Stillwater that's out right there now. You, there you go. There you go, right? Um, just don't let Matt Damon grow out a man bun because then that is a, a recipe for disaster. Those films, that that's a, that's a flop in the making. But... um. 
Yeah, so I really liked that they gave him that opportunity, and I thought he handled it really well. That was the first time that I saw it. And then on repeated viewings, I've uh, I've only seen it maybe one other time before last night. Um, uh, again, enjoyed it, enjoyed it. And last night, uh, I think it had been a, f a couple years since I'd seen it last, and I was really trying to pay attention to maybe any subtleties that I hadn't picked up on before. And I think one of the things I noticed about this film is there is no shortage of commentary written about it visually, um, from like a stylistic and aesthetic perspective, but also in terms of its like social commentary and things like that. So I was really trying to pay attention to things like that it's the sacred engine, and that these children were like we worth Worshipping Wilfred, right, and it really made me think of like divine right of monarchs and kings, more than it being just a commentary on capitalism, which is what everybody wants to say that th this is about. And obviously, Bong Joon Ho has not had any hesitancy critiquing capitalism. Parasite is clearly about like economic inequality, yeah, absolutely. Um, but this, to me, was less about like a particular economic system and more about control, hierarchy, bureaucracy, and about what sometimes is referred to in philosophy as the great chain of being, which is this idea that there is an ontological establishment for order, that things are the way they are, and what you need to do is accept your fate, or in this film it's called like your predestined station, your lot in life. You accept it, and you live it, and you do it to the best of your ability within that kind of fixed parameter so that you can make the world move or in this setting it's so that you can make the train operate and keep the cohesion and the order and so for me that's what I was really tapped into I thought there was some really interesting stuff there um, and yeah I think it's I think it's really good I love the quirk of this film so I hadn't seen the TV show but the girl had seen the TV show and hadn't seen the film and she was saying <laughs> that the TV show is less quirky and she was like, oh my god, like I didn't realize how fucking quirky this movie is. And it's totally, I think, I told her, I was like, once Tilda Swinton comes in, you're going to be like, oh my god, this is batshit crazy. <laughs> right? Like, she's just fucking amazing in this, right? Just leaning into she's great. this this caricatured uh, politician, um, spin doctor type. It's yeah. fantastic, she's right? She's Nancy Pelosi in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, she's she's absolutely amazing in this, right? And it is. It's funny and it's quirky and it's weird. And and she actually looked at me at one point and she's like, "Is it supposed to be a comedy?" And I was like, uh, "Yes, like kinda, you know, just like in Parasite, where Parasite is this like really stringent social commentary and like tragic family drama. And then at times you're fucking laughing hysterically because it's also hilarious. Like when they're in their when they're in their downstairs apartment and they're trying to get signal, you know, from the cell phone and they're like the waters are flooding or you know like all kinds of things like that right so um that's, that's weirdly become a hallmark of of uh korean cinema south i was korean just gonna cinema. say of south and, korean cinema right and bong joon ho's great at that i mean from the beginning of his career like I, there's one moment in memories of murder where um these cops are beating the shit out of this guy trying to uh force him into a confession and at one point <laughs> They cut back to what's happening between the cops and that that guy that they're interrogating, and they're all just like sitting around watching TV and eating lunch. And then uh, there's another cop that comes in who's kind of the enforcer, and then they all just sort of like wipe their hands and start beating up the guy again that they were just eating lunch with. <laughs> and then there's a, a great a great moment in the host where they're all like mourning as a family and they're giving each other their weight because they can no longer support themselves under the burden of their grief. And then they, like, because they're all doing that simultaneously, they all fall to the floor at once. And then they're all, like, pushing on each other to try and stand back up and maintain their dignity. It's just, he's so, so great at mixing tones. But Sorry to derail the conversation, but I just, I, uh, you got to get to agree. too. Bong Joon-ho is a, a master at, uh, at, at melding those tones. Yeah, let's, uh, on the other side of the recap, let's talk a little bit also about some of the, the important hallmarks of... Uh, of Bong Joon-ho's films, but also South Korean cinema more broadly, to kind of give people who might not be as familiar um, some some stuff to continue to pursue and think about. And in what way does Bong Joon-ho kind of introduce us to a whole different world of cinema? If you're from the West and you're just like primarily familiar with either uh, Anglo-American or Anglo-British or fucking Australian cinema or whatever, whatever the fuck. So yeah, so we're gonna go into a quick uh, quick recap here. 
But um, before I do that, I do want to just give you a reminder that we have a Twitter page up. So go ahead and give us a follow. It's smtm underscore pod. That's smtm underscore pod. Give us a follow there. And I don't want to say too much about it because we don't have too much info to release yet. But we do have some bonus content that's going to be coming for our patrons. So make sure you go to patreon.com slash wisecrack. And also we've got merch up. New merch. We've got stickers. We've got shirts coming out. All that good shit. So make sure you go check all of that madness out. Out. All right, let's go into a quick recap here. So 17 years after an attempt to cool global warming through chemtrails or cloud seeding, the Earth is a frozen tundra devoid of any life, save for one train designed by the Great Wilford. The train is composed of various cars, each of which contains perfect parts that are predestined to play their role in keeping the integrity of the train intact, with the sacred engine at the front driving and controlling the whole train world. The passengers in the back of the train are the poorest and most abused, with police, teachers, and the wealthy occupying cars the further you go up the train. Now, after years and years of mistreatment in the back of the train, a group of the poor decide to stage a revolt and get to the front of the train where they believe they can control the engine. As they say, if you control the engine, you control the train. Now, listening to the advice from an informant further up the train, the poor seize the opportune moment and begin advancing up the train cars, fighting police and eating sushi along the way. They also enlist the help of Nam and his daughter, Yona, who possess a keen insight of how the doors or the gates operate, separating each of the cars. Now, by the time they reach the engine room, only Nam... Uh, his daughter and Curtis have survived, and just before they're set to breach the engine room, Nam explains that his plan this entire time has actually been to blow up the door to the outside world because he believes that the world is actually warming and that they can survive outside. Curtis then enters the engine room and meets Wilford, who explains that he's been the informant all along and that he actually wants Curtis to take over for him when he dies. Wilford believes that this is the only way to keep humanity alive on this train, which is the only world that is left. But they refuse to accept this deal. They blow the door to the outside and derail the train. Then Nam's daughter, Yona, steps outside the train, and off in the distance, she sees a polar bear alive and well, signaling that perhaps another world beyond the train is possible after all. End of film. But before we continue, we gotta give a shout-out to our sponsor, Storyblocks. You know the deal. Storyblocks. Complete stock solution, providing an unlimited library of over a million-plus royalty-free, high-quality video, audio, and images through cost-effective subscription plans. We talk about them all the time. Why? Because they're badass. That's why. I use them personally. We at Wisecrack use them personally so that we can get all of our effects for sound, for b-roll footage, etc, etc, etc. And if you are a creator, you know how much of a pain in the ass it is to get stuff and then you have to pay for it and then you can't find the stuff. So it's amazing that you can have access to all the goodies you could ever possibly need when you're making your podcasts or when you're making YouTube videos or Insta videos or TikTok videos. Whatever you need, head over to Storyblocks and they got all the goodies for you. So, click the link in the description or go to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack and you can learn more about Storyblocks and all they have to offer. Again, storyblocks.com slash wisecrack or click the link down in the show notes. All right, back to the show. All right, sweet. So let's start by talking about Bong Joon-ho and his filmography. I agree with Ryan that I think that Snowpiercer is towards the bottom of his filmography, but again, he hasn't ever made a bad film, mm -hmm. which is pretty fucking impressive. So let me ask you this, Ryan, and for people who are in the know, this is going to be a little bit inside baseball, but is he God-tier? Is he a God-tier director? Has he changed the game? Uh, I believe in, I, I, I said he changed the game, yes. I believe, I don't think Jared would say that, but but to me, he's a God-tier director. Every, everything he comes out is so, everything he puts out is so unique in him. And to quote him at the Oscars, you know what, it's the, uh, or I guess he's quoting Martin Scorsese, what, the, 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 the personal is the most universal. And I think that that, it's really, you know, all of his movies have just these little human quirks that kind of, like you can tell, just came from his mind. But somehow that makes them all universally uh, great and acclaimed movies because we can all kind of relate to them. Yeah. So what do you think is, like, if we're going to rank his films, I'm looking at his I'm so right glad now, you just asked me that. 
My okay, own personal okay. rank is I go Mother 1. I love Mother. Not the Darren Aronofsky movie, <laughs> his mother. And then I go, I'm probably going to go Parasite 2. Then I'm going to go, uh, yeah. I'm going to go Memories of Murder 3, uh, The Host 4, Snowpiercer, and then Okja. Am I missing one, Raymond? Barking Dogs Never Bite. I've never, I've never, I've never seen dogs never bite. So of the, of the ones I've seen, that's my list. Yeah, mine is exactly the same. Perfect. <laughs> that's the objectively yeah, yeah, yeah. true good list. <laughs> Raymond, what about you? Um, I'm I'm frantically writing it down right now <laughs> to make sure. Sounds that like it your memories good, of I knew you're gonna... Am I wrong? Uh, no, no, no. I I mean, anyone who follows me on on Twitter or Letterboxd, where my profile pic is me standing in front of a parasite poster <laughs> with my eyes blurred out, could probably guess what my number okay. one is. I I love parasite. I think it's one of the best movies uh-huh. of the century. Um, wow. After that, okay. I would go mother. Then I'd go memories of murder. So far, we're exactly the same, except one and two are switched. Except, except one and two are split. Yeah, but, um, but for me, for me, it's one A and one B. Like, if you were like, like I could, I could switch Mother and Parasite. Like, to to me, it's almost a tie. It's basically a tie. But Mother was the first film that I saw of his, so it kind of has a special place in my okay. heart. You know. Um, then I'm gonna go uh, the host. I think similar to what you were just saying, Austin. The host that was my number four. Heart, yes. <laughs> That was that was the first one of his that I ever saw, and I it also holds up. I mm. think it's a really fun movie. Uh, I would put Barking Dogs after that, um, or excuse me, the, I would put Snowpiercer, Snowpiercer and Barking Dogs. I uh, you know depending on what day, either or, but maybe Snowpiercer then Barking Dogs. And I actually haven't seen Okja because oh, I f- I feel like hold on before you jump down my throat. I have a tendency with filmmakers whom I really admire to kind of put one to the side to always have a little extra something that I can always still <laughs> discover. Okay, um, that's and that, that's very that's very cute, of, Raymond. I actually well, the cute <laughs> cute is enough. the best word that I can think. Of. I think that's very cute. <laughs> and Okja was an easy pick for me, setting aside because I feel like that's going to be a total tearjerker for me, and it's I'm I don't know that I've been like in the right headspace to turn that one off. Interesting. Okja is a fucking tearjerker. It is. Uh, it, it pulls on all the heartstrings, and especially if you're an animal lover, then, and you are, with your little, your new little rescue puppy oh, next to you, probably. <laughs> yeah. We've got the two, the two Pomeranians <laughs> it was a tearjerker. sitting in here wondering what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah, because I was like, oh, why isn't this yeah. as good as Bong Joon-ho's other movies? <laughs> 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 Fuck Netflix. <laughs> that's that's the other thing, too. I've also heard that Oak is a, a little bit rocky. Um, but I still I still look forward to seeing it eventually when I do. I've just, uh, like I said, I've kind of said it. A little uh, behind the, the scenes here, you know, this Snowpiercer, this movie we're talking about was, was almost... Uh, had a very rocky production story because a little convicted felon named Hardy Weinstein almost got a hold of it, yeah a, a hold of it and then cut it up. Well, he did. well I mean, he yeah. did produce, he did end up distributing it, but then it's funny. There's a really funny production story, an interview where Bong Joon was like, "Yeah, Harvey Weinstein basically, you know, he wanted to cut like an hour away from the movie, and I said no, and then finally he goes, you know what? Fine, Bong, we're gonna release your cut, but to not very many theaters." So it's not going to do as well. And then Bong Joon-ho's like, I think he thought that he was screwing me, but actually we all celebrated that night because our movie is actually going to get released. We don't care how many theaters it fucking is in. You know? So I was like, that's, that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, there's, there's a great story. Uh, first of all, obviously, fuck Harvey Weinstein forever and ever, amen. Um, but there's a great story about, uh, I think it was Isio Takahata, who's the... Um, uh, Hayao Miyazaki's partner at Studio Ghibli. Um, I think Harvey Weinstein or Miramax was in charge of uh, distributing Princess Mononoke. Oh, yeah. And they wanted to make a bunch of edits to that. And I'm pretty sure it was Takahata that sent a katana to the offices of Miramax with a handwritten <laughs> note that said no cuts. <laughs> and it was just like, and I think that fucking so intimidated the guy. Into, there are a handful of stories that are about people just like not fucking cowing to Harvey Weinstein and like all bullies, he just completely wimps out every time. There's a great story about Billy Bob Thornton calling him when he, he threatened to, to bury, um, uh, I think it was Sling Blade that he was going to distribute. And Billy Bob Thornton was like, "I don't give a, I don't give a goddamn what you do with my movie. You, I, I made that movie for me, you son of a bitch. Wherever you please." Well, <laughs> first of like, all, heard... first of all, excellent, 
uh, impersonation. Yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> Thanks. That, that was um, very but good. yeah, he got ten million dollars for the distribution rights to Slingblade. He's like, you already gave me your ten million, motherfucker. I don't give a fuck what you do with my movie. <laughs> Just shut him down. There's, I think it's recounted in um, in Rebels on the Back Lot, uh, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe it's in Down and Dirty Pictures. But it's it's a really good anecdote about Billy Bob Thornton just putting him right in his place. Okay, so let's talk about Bong Joon-ho. How has he changed the game? What is it that he does that is unique as a filmmaker? And then particularly what's exemplified in this film? Like we talked a little bit about, you know, people moving left to right. Like what's the significance of that? And and how 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 does one go into crafting a film with that in mind? Like like that seems to be like such a very specific idea that you would intentionally have to craft from the beginning, that would have to be storyboarded um, to make sure that there's continuity. Like, let's talk a little bit about that. And and then how does that kind of speak of the cinematic genius of someone like Bong Joon-ho who can just handle the language of cinema with such mastery? Well, I think there is kind of a... It may not occur to folks right away, and I think also a lot of a lot of lesser filmmakers would want to overthink it, and they would they, they would try to get fancy with it technically. Mm. But there is uh, there is a simplicity to um, you know uh, much of the world reads from left to right. We we scan things as moving from left to right as being natural, just because we've been conditioned that way from reading. There are all ton uh, all kinds of like um, studies on this that. Um, Hitchcock used to do it in his movies that I think it's in Strangers on a Train when he introduces the protagonist you see their feet moving from left to right when he introduces the antagonist they're moving from right to left because it just kind of triggers something in your brain that's like oh something's off about this frame or the the, the movement or the momentum of it and this is also a trick that I know a lot of uh, filmmakers avail themselves of that uh, generally in movies uh villains will i don't know about generally i don't know how common this is anymore but there are a lot of examples of villains in movie parting their hair to the left which kind of implies that they're left-handed but just seeing someone's hair parted to the left because so many people are more commonly right-handed they part it to the right more naturally it's just one of those things that kind of like jumps out to you and sticks and in if your left hand that, way. if you're left-handed that's the devil that's the devil's doing yes it's it's left-handed erasure <laughs> certainly but uh to bring it back to snowpiercer this is a trick that uh that peter jackson used in the lord of the rings films as well he tries to always frame the fellowship as moving from the left to the right of the frame uh when they're on their uh their journey and i i think it's uh a lot of these sets were even built to break away in the middle specifically so he could just shoot the frame of them going from left to right because that was the important thing about the momentum that anything from right to left was supposed to be read as as conflict um or or as introducing drama um but yeah there's like i mentioned george miller in, in fury road cinema history has tons of these little you know uh kind of psychological tricks littered throughout uh that are, are just there to sort of subtly signal to the audience uh, aspects of the story. And I think it, it, it takes a good deal of restraint, which is not a word that you would usually associate with this specific movie, um, to, to once again not overthink it and just say like, oh yeah, you know, we, we want a natural flow of continuity, uh, continuity of action from left to right. I don't know. It makes yeah, sense I think me. he knows yeah. these, he just knows cinema so well. There's some directors we watch their movie and you're just like, not everything's firing on all cylinders and and it's very important that he's a writer director right he's not just a good director that is that is, that you know can take a script and then you know put it put it to, to celluloid he basically i think that, that that is part of where his genius comes from is that he's creating these all the, you know these f- films whole cloth and while he's writing it, not only are things happening in really interesting uh, uh, story structure ways, like Parasite, uh, you know that that whole third act I never saw coming. Like, like, like every everything, yeah. It, it, yeah, his his movies are these really cool maze-like gauntlets uh, from a story perspective. But then he can, and then he could obviously give those scripts probably to somebody else, and then who go uh, uh, that turn out. But he's just knows how to perfectly execute his own scripts, which is a huge talent in and of itself. There's some people that write their own scripts and they're just not good at directing them or the, or vice versa, where they're directing other people's scripts. But the, to, to really be able to knock it out of the park with your own scripts is a talent. And then uh, the, the personal being universal is his thing too. And then I, I would point, you, you're pointing to George Miller. I think that's an apt comparison. I kind of would point to, he's like, 
the Korean Coen brothers as one person, right? Because the, the, the humor is such a big part of his movies and why they work, I think, because these movies are all pretty, you know, pr- thematically serious films, uh, uh, but all of them, without, without exception, have, uh, I think, are grounded in their point of view and, and, and sense of humor in a way. Uh, uh, and that makes them so palatable to just regular people. Like Parasite, I think, would not have worked without how funny it is. And, uh, uh, and, and, and it's hard to even talk about why that movie is so funny, but it just is in, in a very subtle way. And I think a lot of his movies are. And if that humor weren't there, that movie would be relentless. It, it wouldn't would work be, as well, you know, yeah. And I saw much, yeah. I saw the film at the Sydney Film Festival, and and Bung was there, and it was great because the audience was like seventy percent Korean, and they even got more of the jokes because there's inside jokes or there's like um, references to certain economic situations, like the cake shop kind of stuff, right? That like that it took me a minute, but because of the kind of infectious laughter of a community, you know, you kind of like start to participate in it as well. So the amount of humor, the the kind of joy that that film stimulates while also the tragedy that it that it points to it kind of creates a really lovely juxtaposition that i think is just masterful when you're telling any story you know yeah and i actually i actually i actually got a lot of like paul verhoeven vibes on this viewing and i think it was because like for some reason starship troopers was like i don't know why i was thinking that like i don't know if it was because of the sets or because of like the police officers and their outfits yeah and, the very and, like overtly fascistic yeah, uh, yeah 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 um i i will say one one other as long as we're you know uh, comparing apples to oranges uh, i i think of john carpenter a little bit with regards to not only having um uh a great sense of tonal balance and, and being able to imbue these otherwise very, very dark movies with a, a, a good sense of humor. But John Carpenter uh, sort of perfected the art of the visual metaphor. You know, so many of his movies, uh, we've talked about a few uh, on the podcast uh, earlier this year, um, but so many of his movies are like social commentary, just kind of wrapped in this horror or science fiction bow and I do feel in a weird way like Bong Juno kind of might be the uh, the sort of heir to that throne a little bit, uh, creating these genre movies that are built around one sort of central metaphorical concept. And I, I think he does it really well. You know, they, they Live is a great movie, but I don't think anyone would call it subtle. <laughs> right. Well, let, let's start thinking about the non-subtle social critique and what are the themes of this film. So there's early on we're introduced to like a pretty um, – we're introduced to the world. This is one of the things I love about it. We're introduced to this world, but it, there's not a ton of explanation, which is maybe why Ryan gets frustrated with the final sequence because it's too much exposition. Kind of like Christopher Nolan, we can fault him for explaining the science too much rather than kind of letting us just kind of um, bathe in the world. This film just starts off, it's like, hey, guess what? The world was going to be plunged uh, or got plunged into uh, like – uh, what's the fuck word I'm looking for? It got plunged into freeze, uh, freezing, frozen, war. frozenness because uh, <laughs> because because these guys were fucking using chemtrails or cloud seeding to try to prevent global warming anymore, and um, and then that's all you get. You don't get anything about like the science and why the chemicals were bad and what happened and why it went wrong. All you get is hey, guess what? We've got a fucking frozen world and there's no life and these are the only survivors on this train, right? And that's basically what you get. And this train is run by this engine, but da 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 da. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting is you're clearly introduced to like a, a type of class struggle. And then this quote, it's, we control the engine, we control the world. And then this second quote, which was, all past revolutions have failed because they couldn't take control of the engine. So what's the engine? And is this true that if you can control the engine, you can control the world or you can control the train? So what do we think? What is the engine and who currently controls the engine? Is is Wilford a representation? Is he a god? Is he a king? Is he government? Is he an idea? Like, what what do we think? What is Wilford, Ryan? Well, this and is the where the movie kind of breaks down for me, just as a metaphor in general. Like, because... I would actually like to turn it over to you what, and get your uh, take on what the fuck they're talking uh, like what the capitalism metaphor is here. And then I would I will commentate on your commentary yeah. and give you what my thoughts. Austin. OK, so very simply, there's clearly class divisions. There's clearly a hierarchy. The 
the poor are needed because they produce children and the children are the produce integral labor. components that produce the labor power in and the our, machine. And our former, our former fan who got mad at us for making every show about <laughs> capitalism. I know. Socialism I know. is tuning hey, out right now. Austin talks about capitalism. Drink. Um, <laughs> um, so it's very clearly in that sense that it's an that the poor are needed because they produce energy well, it, to keep the engine running. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and then and then I was actually thinking last night. So for for philosophy nerds, for theory nerds, there's a French uh, philosopher by the name of Louis Althusser. Um, it looks like Althusser in French, but um, Althusser he he talks about these two different types of apparatuses. One that he calls repressive state apparatuses, and one that he calls ideological state apparatuses. And these are ways that that um, the dominant power system controls society. Right? A repressive state apparatus is like the police. Right? The police will intentionally repress revolt. It keeps order. Um, things like that. And I was thinking that a lot. I was like, oh, you've got these these fucking brutal police officers that are coming in and they are stifling dissent. They're um, abusing their power, et cetera, et cetera. And then I was like, oh, and then there's an education. You have John Hurt in the back of the train. Well, yeah. Well, I was thinking we, we can get to John Hurt because his character is oh, really interesting, sorry, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's the ideological state apparatus. And the ideological state apparatus is best represented by something like the educational system. And then we also see as these people move forward that you've got this educational system where they're like doing the equivalent of like a pledge of allegiance. But it's like an oath of allegiance they're worshiping. And it's, yeah, they're saluting and they're learning this behavior. And this is something that they just get raised with. And this makes it so that it becomes ideological, unconscious. It becomes part of their very way of being. And so I was thinking, and obviously Althusser is writing in the context of how it is that the state controls a capitalist economy. It uses repressive forms, but it also uses ideological forms. And I thought that we could definitely see that on the train. It's got its repressive elements, and it's got its ideological elements. And, of course, it's literally exploiting labor. Like, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's not only doing that. But it's doing that by exploiting like reproduction. So even the very the, the the very like most natural thing that humans do, like having babies, is something that Wilford is like, cool. You have your babies. I need them nice and small so that I can stick them in my machinery so I can keep this sacred engine going. But it's not really sacred, right? It's, that's just some bullshit that he tells people to try to control people. Yeah, but within also within the closed system of the train that. Children are the only new commodities being produced, essentially. Like, they have uh, an agriculture car where they're, you know, growing tomatoes, and um, they have the, the aquarium car where they say, like, oh, we're allowed to eat this much fish per year, and that keeps the tanks in balance or whatever. But what I was going to say about uh, about John Hurt in the back, of the, I can't remember his character's name. Gilliam. Gilliam. And I did wonder, is that a nod to Terry Gilliam in the film <laughs> Brazil? I was wondering Could that. Could be. Um, I, you know, this this comes back to the, the aesthetic discussion we were having earlier. I wonder how much, I haven't read the graphic novel on which this is based, but I wonder how much of both the visual cues for this film are taken from that and also the, the story cues or character names and stuff. I'm not sure. Um, but I was going to kind of dovetail off of your point that ideologically there is this, this sort of, uh, this... I don't want to call him a secret agent or whatever, but he serves to kind of like placate the masses and funnel their disenchantment and their energy and frustration towards something that is overall productive for the the system, as it were, you know, in, in this particular metaphor, capitalism. Right. Um, well, right. Just so that people know, it's because we learn that somebody from the lower classes is actually in bed with Wilford and that this is a whole system that's orchestrated. They they allow revolts to happen periodically. Thin the herd. So one, so they can uh, diminish the population. Thin the herd, exactly. Um, so for population control. And also it kind of inspires people so that they continue going on rather than just wallowing in despair. And that is that that ties in perfectly to the the metaphor of capitalism that uh, how many people 
fucking spend all their time on Twitter groveling to Elon Musk because they want a ticket to Mars or whatever. Like there, there has to, you know, the, the myth of the American dream has to exist because otherwise the entire system falls apart. Like if you don't actually believe in anything aspirational, if, if you don't believe things can get better for you, then what, what is there to believe in? And I think from, from, oh, sorry, just, just to put a button on it really quick. Um, I was just going to say, Austin, before uh, Ryan passed the ball to you, I think the easiest read is like uh, uh, Dan R. said in the chat, he says, I'll take means of production for $500. For $500. Um, but there is also, because this movie is explicitly also about climate change, obviously climate change is inexorably linked to capitalism, um, but there is something kind of not necessarily hopeful, but authentic uh, within this movie's representation of how climate change affects everyone. It just affects everyone at different times, at different moments. And there are people who think they are going to be ahead of it or above it. But ultimately, it's like, no, we're we're all on this same vessel. Um, and I, I can also see how, uh, therefore, the engine exists as a metaphor for, you know, the sun or just... The like the, mm. the very idea of just like natural resources, the essence of life, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. But j- that's just one thing to throw out. But sorry for cutting you off, Ryan. Oh no, uh, 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 I, I like the when I first saw the movie. I the, to me the, the reading I like uh, the most is 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 it being a reading on social mobility or just you know you being able to rise up in capitalism right and because essentially everyone is frozen in whatever class they were 17 years ago the rich are going to stay ri- i mean yeah the rich are going to stay rich the poor are going to stay poor essentially for forever right because now because they, they bought they bought tickets to one part of the train based on their you know their, their income at that time and then they're stuck there so i to me i like that kind of being this cool visual metaphor for you know uh, Bong Joon-ho clearly thinking that there's no, there is no American, there is no uh, uh, light at the end of the tunnel under capitalism. You're kind of stuck where you're at. Like that is a cool metaphor. But to me, you know, being it being a one to one to our own reality and stuff, I just I don't really see. Because at the end of the day, I mean, I'll stick up for Wilford in the sense that everyone on Earth would be dead if he didn't make this train, right? Like theoretically, you know. So he is offering them some service. Am I crazy? Uh, uh, and then, yes, it becomes a microcosm for our own society on the thing. But, but I, I just, uh, uh, that's where it all starts. The metaphor all starts breaking down mm. in terms of like, like, like we, our situation is not really like this train. I mean, well, I, get, I mean, it's not, no, it's not one-to-one. We're not the, all, yeah, I like there is, right. this is still metaphor. It's not, it, it, it's not like a literal representational but it seems you to know, be an indictment of capitalism as a whole. Whereas, to me, I would is. say I would I think there is social mobility. You can rise up in America or in, in yes, pe- I mean people can, but those are so few and far between. And one of the things about orchestrating this revolution is the idea that the leader will sell out the revolution at the end of it, and there and thus like serve as an aspirational figure, so that. They can maintain the order for, you know, a a few more generations and say, no, look, you know, a few you got up front. Don't worry. Just wait your turn. That is that is how it relates to capitalism, that every every single time there is one aspirational figure who is able to uh, escape the, you know, uh, terrible and brutal circumstances under which many people are forced to live in this country and in many countries around the world. I don't want to diminish diminish other people's suffering, Um, but those people are used as a cudgel against other folks who have the audacity to ask for more. Yeah, because because uh, there's no there's no there's no implication that anyone from the last train ever gets to live in the train where they're eating caviar and partying and stuff like that. That's why they're stuck in their predestined station, right? They have their role to play in the service of the world. And what I think is even maybe more potent is that there's this famous phrase from Margaret Thatcher that's used to describe what's referred to as neoliberal capitalism, which is uh, follows by the acronym TINA. There is no alternative, right? This is the way of the world. And whenever you start speaking about is, like this is something, you're kind of engaging in the world of what in philosophy we would call ontology, right? And you can't war against that because you simply are in this. You are this person. You are this identity, right? And how dare you try to shake the grounds of what you are, you know? And that's kind of the idea here. And so what they do is they orchestrate, like Raymond is saying, one opportunity 
to continue the people in, uh, in in the back from believing that they might be able to somehow transcend their lot in life, but in reality they never will be able to because they're going to get killed by the repressive state apparatus, right? They're going to get killed or they're going to just um, kind of have a moment again where they – no, they're going to get killed. There is no other alternative there, right? They get fucking wiped out. <laughs> it, now, in the train, I in their situation, yes. Yeah. Like I see all this. Like in in uh, the uh, getting back to the one the, the metaphor, you know, I mean, is essentially it's it's the th- uh, the state just wants to get dangle the carrot in front of you, like oh, keep working, keep producing stuff for us, but really, uh, at the end of the day, they don't want that. Is that kind of the uh, they just want you to work. Is that is that they're exploiting you? Uh, That's the deal. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is he's definitely taking a much harder line, kind of stance on this, right? Like he's saying, you're just gonna fucking die if you try to rise up, right? Whereas, like, I think a more nuanced take would be like, yeah, sure, some people are gonna be able to rise up to the middle class, and then some people are gonna be able to ascend to the upper middle class, and then some people are gonna become billionaires, but generally speaking, we know that, you know, it's generational wealth, which is kind of like the um, biggest guarantee of future wealth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? We know this, and it's becoming, inequality is becoming uh, more and more entrenched. We know this. I mean, the work of Tamar Piketty in recent years has kind of even quantified how this happens, why it happens. Um, So we know that that's the case, but he's definitely making it much more dystopian. But here's, here's the thing. Here's the interesting thing. This is why I think the end of the film is actually really hopeful. Because essentially what Wilford is saying is... I do not. Yeah, yeah. It's this interesting. Because Wilford says, this is the world. And that's humanity. And I am preserving humanity by creating the world. And he says explicitly the train is the world, right? In other words, this is all there is. This is the totality of all that can be, that exists, that must be, because there's no possibility anywhere else. And then what do they do? They blow the fucking train up, and then they see, actually, you know what? Another world is possible. Now, it might be fucking hard. And then this is where it makes me question, like, is Bong Joon-ho kind of like, wow, in order to to create some alternative, do you have to fucking derail the train and kill a shitload of burn people? the world down? <laughs> yeah, right. Is, is that what he's saying? And then is that is that the cost? And is that is that worth it? Like, I think those questions are things we can wrestle with. But I definitely think the fact that there is life outside of the train and the fact that the airplane is becoming more and more visible that shows that actually it's difficult and it's going to be an uphill battle, but another world is possible. That's my interpretation. See, of to me, the, the, my well, I, I get that your interpretation of that, but but logically, all that tells me is all right. The the people were wrong. That they're actually, you know, you could survive. So that was just like a, a you know a negligent aspect of science that just didn't you know or, or or we just didn't understand. You think that it never that life never was fully eradicated. You think that life was continuing in some places. We, they are you saying Wilford uh, uh, and and company and everyone on the train doesn't actually believe that 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 life is only contained in that train and that they know life is is available outside of the train and that they're still gonna that they they just want this train to go on because so they can be on top. To me, I don't get that. From no, the I, th- I think every everyone is pretty much sold on the idea that the, the train, the only person who has a theory otherwise is Song Kang Ho, who when they when they cross Karayanagi Bridge, he lifts his daughter up and they look out and he's like, oh, it keeps melting. He has this theory kind of germinating in his head. Um, but I think everyone else, Ryan, you're you're right. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone is on is on the same page that like. The, the life is not sustainable outside. The or are we to train. think that Wilford was just this hyper train nerd and he's like, ooh, I'm going to have my little train world where I'm the god in my little train world because I've always wanted this. And he's like the master of puppets kind of guy. <laughs> I think I think you could I think there could be a good faith reading to that effect. But I'm pretty sure that the the uh, environmental circumstances that led to the necessity of Snowpiercer did wipe out like pretty much everyone else the movie the movie even shows people like frozen to death in their cars like it's you know 
it's it's pretty bad out there. Uh, it, but I think by the time by the time we get into the movie, there is a suggestion, but not necessarily confirmation that life could be sustained beyond the train. My uh, takeaway from the movie that he probably did not uh, intend is that it's hard to govern a society of any kind. Okay, <laughs> yeah. if you're the government, you know, of a big country that's not a train, or if you're the government, the head of a government that's not a train, it's like how the fuck? What the fuck is he supposed to do? Are all these people supposed to do? And, you know, like, it does seem like Bon Joon-ho is saying at the end, you got to burn the whole system down. Or essentially, what I would even say, or a step further, it, it, they're, they're, it's better to have no society at all than a society where there is, like, this level of inequality and exploitation going mm. on. Essentially, right? It, I mean, it, the, it was a suicide move at the end. But he basically said, fuck it. Fuck this train. Fuck the re- all of humanity. Fuck all the <laughs> poor and rich people that live on here. But I'm, I'm doing it all to spite my oppressor, you know? I mean, which is a move. Uh, it's definitely uh, a move. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's consistent with the notion that... Um, you know there 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 is no like there there is no half measure in a revolution right <laughs> like and it's, to me it's that's kind a problem of, <laughs> it's kind of all or nothing but also this is a science fiction movie this is this, yeah. this is working metaphorically i mean there 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 are you know there there is a possibility for nonviolent revolution in the world but it's not nearly as cinematic well i think it's also really important that if we think about how Wilford views humanity and therefore then why does he erect the apparatus that he erects? We can look at this historically in terms of the context of the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes famously believed that humanity in its natural condition was basically this violent, chaotic, he says, life is nasty, short, and brutish, right? And he believed and then the role of the state comes in and organizes that, puts order over things, creates hierarchy, allows for society to kind of um, control those more animalistic urges. And you see that because Wilford at one point even tells Curtis, he says, look back at the train and he sees all these like people clashing and colliding. And he even says, you know, it's chaos, but I'm the one that creates the order. And the way that he does that is by saying, this train has a role, this train car has a role, you have a role, etc., etc., etc. So there's something about that. And I think that's really what this film, that's the primary thing for me. It's that we don't have to accept our lot in life, that we can hope for more. And hope can, one, be used to distort our capacities for transforming the system, or hope can be something that can cause us to aspire for more, but at what cost, and how do we do it? And I think that's what we can really think about when we kind of like step back and look at this film. And that's what I don't know. Is it worth it to burn the train down in order just to potentially build an alternative world. Is that the best, like, is that no. the best option? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and it is kind of a suicide mission, well, I mean, right? If, if, if we're extending the capitalism metaphor, I mean, capitalism did destroy the world. Like, we're, we're living through the extinction of our species because of capitalism, so I would say, yeah, why, why not just burn the fucking thing down and... You know, it can't, it can't be worse than the alternative, which is Jesus, all of us just, Raymond. I mean, it's true. What, what do you what do you want me to say? It can't, it can't that can't be any worse than all of us continuing to like plot away for forty hours a week and waiting for the fires to be at our. Door. Oh yes, it can. <laughs> we can have we can have a nice long slow burnout over you know the next three hundred years a while slow we're slowly burn. boiling to death. I would much prefer that than to just say you know fuck it, let's burn it all uh, down and I get don't it know. all over. Tell with. that tell that to my niece and nephew who don't have any say in it. Well, like, I know. Well, obviously, I mean, you know. Like every generation inherits all this bullshit from the last ones, right? But at the end of the day, if you're asking, well, would you prefer to have never existed? I mean, that's an existential question, but sure, yeah. See, and this is what this is what's great about this type of like social commentary because these are the types of questions that I think the film presents, and it doesn't really give easy answers. Like I do think I do think that the film offers some answers, right? But I don't think it gives you easy answers because there's clearly cost for whatever situation. Like, Curtis clearly, like, yeah, he could have taken over and then continued the maintenance of the train, and then maybe, maybe this would be, like, one um, a type of, like, evolutionary reading that he would have learned 
the truth about the situation and then if he took over he could have somehow figured out a better strategy for transforming the roles of um, each of the cars and the patrons on the car and kind of changed it from the inside like that's one option that would be like a like a non-reformist reformism right um, that's a possibility and then you've got Nam who's like fuck this I'm just gonna blow this thing up and start it over so there are other options that could have been explored they just weren't explored and that's what I think is really kind of interesting about what this film does at the end is because it kind of puts it to you so that you can start peeling back the onion a little bit to try to see if there's other stuff that we could do I would argue that the polar bear itself is a bullshit Hollywood cop-out ending like I, I think that oh. the, the more hardcore way to end this movie is is he he says fuck the train fuck it all and then it's literally just a slow pull out of of what's left of humanity all dead right because <laughs> to me the, just having the polar bear there when uh, at the very end is just is is yeah is is having your cake and eating it too in such a grandiose way where you're like all right fuck all the system but oh yeah there might be this glimmer of hope that we hadn't even talked about and we're not going to give you a chance to even uh, you know it's just going to have this one shot of the whole polar bear and then well uh, it's as our, uh, our fade famous, to black our favorite chaos theorist would say life finds a way eh? give me some dr malcolm in the house shirtless jeff goldblum memes please send them our way yeah we'll take them um, okay, we got to wrap up this conversation. Uh, I want to do a kind of quick uh, dip into a mailbag section a little bit. Um, if you want to dive into this conversation, give us your thoughts about Bong Joon-ho, your thoughts about South Korean cinema, your, your thoughts about Snowpiercer and, uh, and, and Bong's filmography more general, your thoughts about are we missing anything about the themes, are we wrong about the social critique, what can we do in a world where you're stuck in your station, what do we do about climate change, people, help us figure shit out. I mean, I know we pretend like we're a film podcast, but come on, we're gonna fucking change the world. This this little this little station that we have uh, at our disposal, or something like that, anyway. But just reach out to us. You can email us at movies at wisecrack.co with your thoughts, or you can call us at one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. That's one two one three five three four eight. 807 we have a voicemail about the green knight we're gonna go to it now what's up hey what's up wisecrack it's logan here from pennsylvania i'm calling to talk about your recent green knight podcast so what i want to talk about is the fox and its relationship with Wayne versus his relationship with the lord he meets so when i first watched the movie i immediately trusted the fox and saw him as an ally almost empathetic for Gwen. because of this when Gwen arrives at the lord's house and i see the imagery of the lord hunting the fox i distrusted him right away but upon reflection and after listening to your podcast, that was put into a new context for me. So Raymond brought up that the Lord is, is an extension of the Green Knight meant to test Wayne. I immediately thought of the fox hunting. A fox is already symbolic of the sly and cunning, which I should have realized. Because of this, I realized that the fox was just one more challenge meant to test Wayne and see if he could be led astray last minute. The fox was a hidden enemy, and I felt betrayed. Let me know what you think of this reading. I feel like this is something obvious that I completely missed the first time. I'd appreciate your uh, input, and I appreciate your podcast. Keep it up. Bye. Logan, thank you for your thoughts. Okay, so his whole point is that the fox was actually a test, a kind of deceiver. And I just real quick, I want to look at an email from Graham who says, uh, you know, one thing I have loved about the film is how David Lowry fits in the so-called five virtues which all medieval knights were expected to adhere to. One, friendship, which is the fox. Two, generosity, which is the Barry character, or Barry's character. Three, chastity, Alicia Vikander. Four, piety, which is Winifred. And five, courtesy, which is the Lord. So, is the fox a deceiver? Is the fox friendship? How does this fit in with the other characters? What do we think? Um, uh, well, I mentioned uh, last week, the, the, the caller even alluded to this, that um, uh, I, I'm pretty sure the fox is uh, the, same, the, the same actor who plays uh, Gawain's mother. Um, but I also like, uh, I really like the caller's interpretation of this, that I, I think last week I said that she's kind of stepping in at the last moment to try and be like, okay, this enough is enough. I regret summoning the Green Knight. You don't have to go forward with this. But I kind of like his interpretation that that in itself feels like uh, maybe a test. 
uh, or uh, something like that. You know, it's it, it's his his last test of of integrity and courage before he uh, he he gets into that boat and goes to his uh, his final meeting with the Green Knight. Um, but yeah, I um I think that's a really interesting perspective that he has on it. Uh, what about you, Ryan? I yeah, I honestly hadn't considered uh, the fox being anything other than just kind of a, a, a wise protector friend person. So uh, that that was an interesting take in email. I I, I um I don't know. Why are our listeners so goddamn smart? I know. Please. Why are you smarter than me? Yeah. Why? Fucking call us, write us, please. Wisecrack. I'm uh, sorry. Movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. Or you can call us one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. Let us hear your thoughts. We love you as always. Give us a follow on Twitter. SMTM underscore pod keep abreast of potential bonus content coming soon uh fucking just where can we find you on the internet let's start with raymond go uh yeah you can find me on uh, twitter and letterboxd i'm at crematoria and uh if you go by there to give me a follow also give uh, the sunrise movement a follow and consider uh maybe giving them a, a monthly donation they're doing some some great work uh, some great climate advocacy uh, really really good activists on that front and make sure that you check out Okja at some point, Raymond, and then report back to I us with that jewel that you've, that you've kept for you. All right, Ryan, what about you, brother? You can find me at Ryan Shorts on YouTube, Instagram, and all that stuff. I'm releasing comedy videos there. Also, uh, make sure to donate to the polar bear exhibit at the Memphis Zoo. Um, they're doing lots of good stuff over there at the Memphis Zoo. Shit. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. Uh, I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. Uh, I was also on the Squanch this past week with Ryan. We talked about the season finale. Fuck yeah, we were. Hell yeah, and that's pretty much it. We will see you next week. We think we're doing Apocalypse Now. Oh, nice. Classic. So, maybe. Don't write that shit in stone, but potentially, Ryan, send us out of here. We should do a two-parter on Apocalypse Now and uh, uh, and the one his wife made about the doc- uh, what, what, oh, what's it called? Yeah, uh, it's a uh, heart, heart of the heart. That's a really great document. Yeah, that movie rocks. All right, yeah. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been Snow Me the Meaning.